podcast for Friday 20th of October with me Ian Welsh. Coming up a little later as a preview for Innovation Forum's Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference in a few weeks is a conversation I had with IDH's Tessa Mulsting and Chi Tran on the impact of the EU's deforestation regulations on the coffee sector. That's to come. First though is our regular roundup of some sustainable business news this week with B. Stevenson. An increase in business engagement in green financial products has led to more scrutiny of the companies and their underwriters. Unearthed, Greenpeace's UK journalistic arm, has published an investigation into the controversial companies linked to green debt in Brazil. Unearthed found that funds raised through the Brazilian government's Agribusiness Receivable Certificates, or CRAs, were financing entities engaged in deforestation, land grabbing and instances of slave labour. A look into the suppliers of Caramuru, a large Brazilian grain trader which issued a green CRA of £54.4 million, revealed links to one particular large-scale farmer who has previously been fined for illegal deforestation, stealing tens of hectares from a neighbour's land, and the illegal sale of soy. The bond was underwritten by UBS. Unearthed also reported a similar story in which Santander sold supposedly green bonds issued by UISA to investors despite UISA's past environmental fines most recently for setting fire to 17 square kilometres of Amazon rainforest last year. The investigation raises serious questions about the claims of green financial products and provides context to the European Parliament's approval of new standards to fight greenwashing in the bond market this month. In a significant industry shift, Muzin Mass, a major player controlling 18% of the global palm oil market, has announced its decision to transition away from sourcing from smallholder farmers for its EU supply chain, in order to comply with incoming EU deforestation regulations. The EUDR requires levels of traceability that are challenging for smallholder farmers' output. Muzin Mass will instead supply EU markets with palm oil from its own operations and other suppliers with already sufficient traceability. This move comes amidst criticism from the governments of Malaysia and Indonesia, the world's largest palm oil producers, who have labelled EU regulations as detrimental for smallholder farmers for causing unintended consequences like this. Fears have been raised that many smallholders lack the technical and financial ability to meet the significant due diligence requirements of the new rule. For instance, to sell into the EU, businesses must provide maps and satellite data to prove exactly where their crops were grown, and that they comply with the regulation. Smallholders, who produce roughly 40% of Malaysia and Indonesia's palm output, would have to help provide these. However, it is important to note that some groups, such as Mighty Earth, have previously contended that the EUDR won't necessarily marginalise smallholders, as long as they receive targeted support to supply this farm-level traceability to buyers. In a new survey of 300 European firms by Centrica Business Solutions, two-thirds of surveyed companies are not factoring Scope 3 or indirect emissions reporting into their net-zero planning. The same proportion of participants said that non-compliance with reporting requirements around Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions is a key risk to address. The report stipulates that businesses currently feel less regulatory pressure to measure and manage Scope 3, The SBTI does require businesses to pledge to reduce absolute Scope 3 emissions by at least 90% by 2050 under its net zero standards. However, this is a voluntary standard. 55% of businesses polled by Centrica Business Solutions said that they were either not at all concerned or not very concerned about preparing for mandatory reporting of Scope 3 emissions. This is required for companies in Europe from 2025. 
and they were therefore not factoring this into their net zero strategies. A few days ago, I spoke with Chi Tran, Regional Director for Asia Landscapes, and Tessa Milstein, Senior Programme Manager for Coffee at IDH, the Sustainable Trade Initiative. We talked about some of the potential impacts and unintended consequences for the coffee sector as the EU's deforestation regulation comes into force over the coming months. Tessa, perhaps you can give us a bit of a snapshot as to where the coffee sector is, what does it look like right now, and who's supplying and from where? The most important thing to say is there's a lot of countries that are supplying coffee and not only a lot of countries, but there's a lot of farmers supplying coffee. Typically, coffee farmers are smallholders. So over 80% of supply comes from smallholders. And we're talking about over 12 and a half million smallholders globally. Coffee is being produced in the Americas, in Africa and in Asia. So really around the world in what we call the coffee belt. It's a tropical commodity, but it typically grows on a bit of mountainous area. So it's sensitive to temperatures and rainfall patterns, for example. But it does mean we have a large diversity in origins and a large diversity in context, even though most of it is produced through smallholders. We've been talking quite a lot at Innovation Forum about the implications of the new EU deforestation regulations that are incoming. Chi, perhaps you can give us a snapshot as to what the EUDR is setting out to achieve within the context of the coffee sector. As we all know, EUDR has come as the result of the fighting against the deforestation globally. Since 1990 until 2020, 420 million hectares of forests worldwide have been lost. And 90% of that is because of the expansion of agricultural land. And in this process, EU is also the major consumer of the commodities that associated with deforestation and forest degradation. So that is why EUDR has come in this context in order to set up the mandatory due diligence rules for all of the operators who import the products into EU markets, that they have to ensure that the products coming into the markets is both deforestation-free and legal to get into the EU market. So this also means that EUDR will require the very strict traceability linking of the commodity to the plot of land where it was produced. And the legality here also means that the products need to be legal according to the laws of the country of production. So in that context, coffee is one of the seven commodities that is put under this EUDR in the first place as one of the commodities that required mandatory due diligence report by the operators who import the products into EU. Tessa, do you have any further reflections on how the regulations will be impacting the coffee sector? I think there will be quite a bit of impact, to be fair, and it refers back a bit to what I was mentioning earlier on, is the sheer number of smallholders that we're talking about in the coffee sector. That makes it complex to get everybody mapped. Currently, the coffee sector is not always very clear, so supply is typically not mapped out that everybody knows their coffee back to the farmer, but that's a requirement under this new regulation. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get that mapping right. And then there are all these different origins that need to do it. So we're not talking about, say, three main origins in which you need to get your mapping right, but we're really talking about a large amount of origins to do so. And each of these contexts are different. In each of those countries, the sector looks slightly different. 
there is a real impact that can come out of this and it could be both positive and negative and I would like to hope that we can focus on the positive and really work towards what she was mentioning and deforestation free coffee supply chains but there is definite risks with it as well so I think it all comes down to how we implement it it will be very challenging but it has a lot of potential for good as well. As you say, Tessa, there are going to be many potential benefits from the regulation. What are the potential unintended consequences, though? I think there's a few. The major one is that we start having a separation between deforestation-free and non-deforestation-free supply chains, which means that you might end up with the more vulnerable farmers being left out of the European market rather than actually combating deforestation in your coffee supply chains, right? So there's a potential inclusion risk where the smallholders that are currently most vulnerable will be worse because they will be blocked from their supply chains. So that's a definite risk. I think the second risk I see is actually along the same lines, but then more for origins. So there might be a move, at least in the beginning, towards the origins that have clearer supply chains, more traceable supply chains, typically some larger farms, which means you might get to even more consolidation of origins, which comes at a risk of losing diversity of supply, losing diversity of flavors, and also comes at a risk, which is something we've seen in the past, of climate change and weather events. So if that hits one origin, then that really impacts your supplies. I would say the biggest risk is really on exclusion of smallholder farmers, and particularly the most vulnerable ones, in areas where deforestation is taking place, so then you don't actually combat deforestation. And the second one is more consolidation to two or three big origins, and with that losing origin diversity, which is quite crucial for the resilience of the sector overall. Gee, I know you're actually in Vietnam right now. Are there any regional consequences or unintended consequences from the EUDR, focusing in Southeast Asia? So I, I fully agreed with the consequences that are posed by TESA, because that is at the global level. But in Asia, we also see the same trend like that. There are a number of more consequences that we can see specifically to Asia. Now, for example, deforestation might come to the non-EU markets. So therefore, there will be like the shift from the deforestation products into the non-EU market, while the deforest, deforestation-free product will go to the EU markets. So therefore, finally, the deforestation issue is still not totally tackled by these regulations. So that might be one consequences. And where the outer, final outcome we want is deforestation-free, but it cannot be happening globally. That's the first thing. The second thing is that because of the very uh, complexity of the supply chain uh, with a very high number of the smallholders, so there might be very high cost of compliance and this putting more burden into the smallholders, like, for example, the requirement of full traceability under the plot level. And this will be very clear in both India and Vietnam. And I think that the last consequence is that we think as the key is that for operators or the companies will put so much emphasis on complying with UDR, why they will forget other sustainability priorities, livelihood of the farmer, uh, water management, food uh, safety, high emission of the production. We are thinking of whether this might be like the very clear risk that will divert the interest and the investment for, of the companies from other very, also very important sustainability priorities globally. Let's unpack some of these consequences, positive and negative. 
Tessa, what could prevent a flight to lower risk growing regions, for example? I guess a few things. The first thing we need to acknowledge is that there's a time to everything. We're talking about a very short period for implementation, 18 months only, and almost six of those have gone already. So what you'll see is that most of the companies now are just looking to where can I get my volumes to be compliant quickly. However, we should never forget the intention of this legislation and the long term of doing this. I think that's the first thing. Keep in mind the long term and going back to Chi's earlier point, then if you want to manage the costs, if you want to do this properly, go in together. So don't try to solve this company by company level, but really come together as a sector, but not just as a sector, but also between public and private sector to come up with systems that actually address the issue. And that's something that we should really vouch for to work together, to work collaboratively, to build on forest mapping systems, to build on farmer traceability systems, but to design them in such a way that you do not expose the farmers to all those additional costs, but you actually share them across the value chain. Those are a couple of very important points, but the the working together, I think, is really important. And the second one being think around where you invest and how you invest. Again, we're talking about over 50 origins in coffee. So it's a lot. Which of those countries do you need to prioritize based on number of smallholders, based on how much they supply to the EU right now, based on to what extent there are existing systems or not? Thinking around where you invest and how you invest as a sector is a second one that's important. And implementation is short, so there tends to be a focus to invest in the origins where you can get those volumes the quickest. But those might not be the origins where you have most of the work to be done to become compliant. I think there needs to be a discussion around how to work together on this, what can be done collaboratively, and where do you need to prioritize, not just in terms of volumes, but in terms of your longer-term supply. And I know the International Coffee Organization, for example, tends to talk about the squeezed middle So those are the countries, the ones that have lots of smallholders, maybe not as structured systems yet, and a large supply to the European market. That's where investments need to come together. Getting that streamlined is quite crucially important to make sure that we don't end up with two compliant origins and the rest is left behind. Chi, do you have any further comments on that? And I wondered in particular if you have any thoughts on how smallholder farmers can best be brought into the scope of the EUDR. I fully agree with what just just mentioned, having the national system in order to create the equal opportunities for all of the farmers, including the smallholders farmers in the high-risk areas, that they might be recognized and, tra- and be traceable so that they can their products can go into the EU market. So that is really the best way in order to support for EUDR scope. And we see that this is the role of the government that needs to support the private sector to do that at the national level. I can give you one example that since the end of 2022, the Vietnamese governments have already come up with draft national action plan together with industry of the coffee industry in Vietnam under the facilitation of IDH in order to agree on the action plan framework of how Vietnam can comply with EUDR and solve the problem of smallholder exclusion, if any. In that framework, we put the smallholders 
farmers, especially in the high-risk areas, are the key that we really need to tackle. And we really need to make sure that all the system will have to cover them and give the specific support to them. In order to do that, at the at, uh, sourcing regions, uh, we applied the landscape approach in order to make sure that all the sustainability programs support from both public and the private sector will cover not only the farmers who are in the favorable conditions, who are in the better off area, but also who are the indigenous people, who are the poor people and who live even in the forest. So with that application of the landscape approach integrated with the supply chain approach, we can make sure that the smallholders farmers will not be excluded from the EU supply chains, but still can get the equal opportunities with all the other farmers who produce the products and sell it to the EU markets. It strikes me that whilst the regulation is going to come into force, perhaps sensitive implementation of any sanctions initially might be a way to help smooth the process. Do you have any comments on that, Tessa? There is an important bit around sensitive implementation, and we focus quite a lot on what needs to happen in origin countries, but obviously there's a lot that needs to happen in importing countries, right? And right now, what we see is that there's not necessarily alignment between those. So that's the first thing I would vouch for, alignment between what you need to do as a company so you don't have anything different in Germany as you would from Belgium, which are the two biggest ports for coffee in Europe. Or if you do coffee and cocoa, you get Amsterdam on top of it. And yet again, you have to do something different. That alignment is very important and providing that clarity as soon as possible is very important as well. I know that's a struggle on all sides, but it's important for us to also make sure and focus on how are those aligned with the work that's happening in origin countries. So everything we just spoke about is incredibly important. But if it doesn't necessarily meet what the importing countries are requiring, then we still have an issue. So that alignment is definitely something that comes on top. Making that the same between the different importing countries is going to be crucial. Second one is how do you then support that transition? A big part of that is where do you invest? How do you invest? And how do you build equal partnerships to do that? I think there is a role for the EU in doing that next to a country by country basis. But I definitely think that that's incredibly important when it comes to kind of sensible implementation. Again, there is a timing bit. Implementation is short. What's going to happen at the end of 24? Who's going to do what? How strict are you going to be? And how is that again aligned between the different countries are quite crucial questions that remain unanswered at this point in time. Chi, do you have any examples from the Vietnam or Southeast Asia context as to what you know, a sensitive implementation of regulation can look like? It is the matter of fact that every companies are now trying to build their own systems in order to meet the requirements of the UDR in the next 18 months when the legislation has come into force. Uh, but this also means a lot of waste will happen and then there might be also like the overlap or the duplication of the efforts from the different companies because they are all sourcing from the different uh, from the same region for example therefore the example that we can really show here is how to bring them all together and agree with the origin governments in order to avoid such kind of overlaps and duplication of efforts. And we all see that the deadline is by the end of next year already by the legislation. 
However, we will see whether we can have any transitional period to the smallholders, especially to make them really ready to comply uh, with the UDR. In that process, the public and the private sector in the origin countries need to really sit down together, brainstorm and agree on then what is the definition and the requirements and the implementation methods of the EUDR solutions, especially to the smallholders. For example, what is the requirements on legality and what is the requirement on traceability that still support like these compliance, but give the transitional period more to the smallholders so that they can be readier and have the equal opportunities to the EU markets. So that is what we have done quite intensively over the last year, over the last months, in order to really have that alignment to avoid that duplication, but also to agree on the solutions together and the definition also, and also the requirement of the, and the design of the solutions in order to present to the EU markets and the importing countries that this is what does it mean by land legality in Vietnam coffee sector, this what does it mean by traceability system until the plot level in the Vietnam context. So that is really the meaningful work that we should apply not only in Vietnam, but we should apply that and scale that to all the other countries. And one example is that we are now also working with the coffee industry to do the same thing in India uh, to engage the, with the Coffee Board of India in order to really set up the same foundation for the India coffee sector. Is establishing that foundation, that sensitive transition for smallholders, are those the next steps you want to see in the coming months as the EUDR comes into effect? We are still waiting for the guidance from uh, European Commission on agricultural use. So, for example, what does it mean by like um, agroforestry system um, whether that could be like a part of this rule and then what is the regulation toward that? What does it mean by legalities and others as well? But what we really want to come from the origin countries in this process is that we can really share with the European Commission and the importing countries on the result of the EUDR pilots globally, specifically on coffee sector, for example. We are now supporting for the pilots in Vietnam, India, Colombia, uh, Uganda, and uh, Kenya, for example, we will present to European Commission on the cost and benefits comparison of the different solutions that we pilot. So the solution on traceability, the solution on smallholder inclusion, the solution on database development. We also present to them that what is the protocol of detecting forest loss and degradation and how to solve those cases of deforestation and to support the smallholder to avoid exclusion. And last but not least, out of these solutions, we will also present to them what are the key outcomes that achieved via those solutions, different solutions. Because if we have the solution with less cost, but still produce the same outcomes, then why don't we choose that solution? Why do we have to choose a very complicated solution which can create like a lot of compliance costs for the sector while the outcome is still the same with a simple solution. So those are the key results of the pilots that we really want to share with the EC in order to really see that now, then when it comes to the really the implementation of this EUDR, those need to be put into consideration of either accepted those solutions accepted by EC 
or is there any change of the legislations in the next three or five years? Tessa, any other steps that we should be looking out for over the next few months? Not necessarily steps from IDH because I think she outlined them very well. Maybe a hope and a wish towards the sector for the coffee sector has been a bit behind on the EEDR, to be frank. For a long time, there was the hope that coffee would not be part of the deforestation commodities as defined by the EU. This is the case, though. The good thing about legislation is that it creates a level playing field, right? So if we're serious about not wanting deforestation in our coffee supply chains, and the same goes for the next legislation that's coming around due diligence, if we're serious about those topics, then the legislation provides an opportunity for us to have a level playing field and start working from there. And what I would really hope for the next months to happen is that as a sector, we can start looking at the legislation like this. So we move away from the complexities, even though recognizing they're there, right? I'm not saying it's not complex, but that we can move into that mindset of this might be an opportunity for us as a sector to create a level playing field towards issues that we deem to be very important. That's a next step that I do not think IDH is in a position to make happen, but definitely something that I would hope to witness in the next few months. And let us not forget, there's more legislation coming, not just from the EU, but also from other countries. Moving supply only will take you so far. Given that there's a lot happening, let's hope that the long-term aims of the legislation, which is undoubtedly well-meaning, do come to fruition and get through the bumps in the road that are inevitably going to happen over the next few months. For now, for Chitran and Tessa Wilson from IDH, thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot. Thank you. The Innovation Forum website is as ever the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. We're getting very near Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities event at the end of the month. There's still time to register to join us. All the details are on the website. We'll be back with the Monday briefing next week and the podcast next Thursday. But that's it for now. I'm Ian Welsh and until next time, goodbye.